fast forward a few years and I found myself in a situation where I was uh, now I was running Twitter in the UK and I, I was in the fortunate position that I could hire and I could build a team that would feel something closer to my experience. And, you know, there's, there's an old truism when it comes to management that, you know, manage people in the way that you wish to be managed. Uh, but the sad thing is a lot of people forget about that. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be more philanthropic and embrace sustainability and social entrepreneurship as well. Please subscribe to the podcast. It makes a huge difference for us. Today, it's a great pleasure to welcome on board Bruce Daisley, who has a very interesting past. I used to head up Twitter in Europe has written a wonderful book that he's going to tell us all about. And, um, well, I'm not going to say anything else because I'm going to pass on the baton to Bruce and let him introduce himself. So lovely to chat to you. And um, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yes, yeah, so until last month, this month, I worked at Twitter. I worked at Twitter for eight years. Prior to that, I worked at Google for about four years. So um, done a long-term work in some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley. I've just quit my job, partly to indulge my passion for workplace culture. And, you know, that's been my side hustle for the last um, three years. And I want to keep it my side hustle. Uh, and my main hustle, I want to, uh, I'm fortunate that, you know, I, I've got a way to earn some money out of that side hustle. And uh, my main hustle, I'm I'm trying to dedicate as long as I possibly can to climate change and to fighting the climate crisis that we're presented with. And um, I didn't know exactly when I quit my job. I didn't know exactly what that would look like. But what I've discovered is if you throw, if you're in that fortunate position that maybe I, I can sort of, the financial imperative isn't isn't bearing down on me, mm-hmm. um, I've found that there's no shortage of fascinating discussions that can be kick-started. So that's where I am and that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just in the process of working out um, what a person like me can do to help in, in terms of the climate climate emergency really is climate the, the the closest thing to your heart right now yeah i was always i was a member of greenpeace when i was 15 and let me tell you that was a long time ago and i um i used to i used to collect for greenpeace every friday night and saturday okay and it was you know that was when i, I guess there were rumblings about climate change but the 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 imperatives were more save the whale acid rain um, and you know the pollution, nuclear p- pollution caused by nuclear power plants. Th- those were the big issues. And but climate change, I think, you know, is has, has just got the um, the urgency to it now. That I, I think probably I could have sat there and said, okay, I'm going to do something on this when I retire. Mm. But it just feels like that would be such an indulgence on my behalf that. Actually, I'm really passionate in doing something on it now. And the fascinating thing for me is that mm-hmm. I'm working on the basis I'm going to fail. So I'm in, in the sense that, you know, people will say at the, the end of like two years, what have you done? And I'll have nothing to show for it. And mm-hmm. so as, as long as you sort of start from the perspective, okay, so failure is the likely outcome. Now my job is to work as hard as I possibly can to change that outcome and it's it really focuses the mind actually i can imagine so you quit twitter 
and you're expecting to fail and yeah. you're going to solve the whole climate crisis for us. Not solve. I mean, even if the only thing that I could conceivably do mm-hmm. is add my weight to direct action or, right. you know, um, then that's what I will do. But I really do hope I've been chatting to some people this week. I really do hope, hope that there's something far more progressive that I can do. As I tweeted when when I left my job, I said, if anyone's looking for help for free, um, someone I really admire said, it's amazing what you can get done if no one cares who's getting paid. Mm-hmm. And so so that's the the position of farmers. I live a very modest life. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's where I've sort of got my focus, really. What's your take right now? So as we're embarking on 2020, as we're embarking on a whole new decade and you've just quit your job, what are we looking at? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the situation looks pretty bleak. The climate situation looks... You know, what I've been intrigued by is the discussions this week that I've had with people who either are setting up funds to try mm-hmm. and sort of um, altruistic funds to experiment or, you know, just I think just trying to get these things onto the policy agenda. I think it will be nonlinear. You know, the, one of the challenges is that, you know, you, you might say someone said to me today, why don't you join the Green Party? Well, you know, with the best will in the world, we've just had an election. And the thing that is emphatically the case is that we're at least four years, maybe five years from another general election, that me joining the Green Party might be powerful in a campaigning way, but it's it's not going to have the most important four years we've got are the next four years. And so it just feels to me like that isn't the easiest solution here. You know, jo- joining a party that might be campaigning for power in 2024 doesn't feel to me like the best use of my energy. Maybe I'm wrong. Where I'm really fascinated right now, I spent some time with a um, a sort of recognisable campaigning group for climate action last week. And um, and I, what I was really fascinated with was was watching how they told the narrative. They, they invited me out to go and um, to watch them present somewhere. And, you know, like an abundance of facts. And, a th- and what I was really taken with is that none of the facts sort of hung together. And and to some extent, the job that all of us have got right now on climate change is telling the story in a succinct way where any of us know the specific action that we need to take. Um, And, you know, look, and some of those actions are governmental, but, you know, having a clearer sense of what we need feels like a big gap right now. Um, Because I think, you know, there's an immense goodwill in this direction but just people need to know what is it should i be you know having one less flight every year what you know should i be using a different power source should by should i be eating local sustainable food and and i think you know getting those things to to be simple heuristics seems like an important part of them getting that message clearer but those are good questions you know and the thing is that sometimes even even people who are well-meaning and educated don't necessarily know the answer absolutely and look you know the um this this a classic thing when you're trying to disrupt 
a pattern of thinking of someone you you go to fud fear uncertainty and doubt so you know if if you and i were running ad, ad, as adversaries in elections against each other then what i would do is i would try and cloudy your message with fear uncertainty and doubt and the challenge of the whole message about the climate emergency right now is that the message is fear and uncertainty and doubt. There's no clarity in, in what everyone is being messaged with. And so the consequence of that, that puts us all into a state of, of sort of mild anxiety. And the mild anxiety is mobilizing. It's, it gets people's attention. But as human beings, to to be just in a, a sort of fight or flight mode doesn't give us the scope to to feel like um, we've got the answers and we know where we're going. And I think you know that's one of the critical things to, to not to to shift into solutioneering, but to try and help people navigate this, to try and help them understand what they can personally do, and then what they need to be voting for in in politics. Tell me about Twitter. What were you doing at Twitter for all these years? I was European vice president or in, in uh, European in the Middle East and Af- Africa. Um, and what does that mean? So the job effectively has got three parts to it. It's um, responsibility for rep- reputation. Uh, so reputation of Twitter as a platform. So you know, all the time thinking about how Twitter is perceived in France, in Germany, um, how is Twitter perceived in the Middle East? And you know, ensuring that we're doing the right things to to be regarded as a platform that uh, makes the right decisions for the right reasons. Uh, so reputation, then um, then the, the next is audience. So how are we growing the people using the Twitter platform? What are the things that will help us grow? One of the things that you know informs that is that one of the, when I first was working on France, it really struck me that um, that the the new york times has about 300 twitter accounts and the guardian the british guardian has you know about 100 twitter accounts but liberation or le monde uh the the two french newspapers have about three or four accounts Mm -hmm. and so you you find this strange thing that we're very comfortable as as english speakers that the internet is in english but what we forget is you know two percent of the internet is in french so if you load a timeline and maybe you choose to follow um, Carly Ray Jepsen or you choose to follow uh, Mo Salah, you know, the Liverpool player. Well, everything they tweet is in English. And so even these icons are tweeting something that's in a language that's foreign to you. And like, even if we were bilingual or multilingual, you know, f- switching between languages is exhausting. So that the first thing that is in my head there is, okay, so can we automatically translate timelines live? Mm. So that was like something that I, you know, I helped pursue. And, and then uh, the, the, the final one is revenue. So Twitter ultimately, like every tech product that you use, is sustained principally by advertising. So what can... What can the company do to bring in more advertising? And it generally acts that the third, that that advertising one, is a direct correlation of the first two. So if your reputation's good and your audience is strong, then you generally get um, ad revenue. Now, you must have seen it grow like wildfire, right? I mean, if you were there all these years. Yeah, well, from zero. So, you know, the, the benefit of it sort of being there when the first dollar came in, the first pound came in, is that... Um, 
is that you know like absolutely you know it, it made half in in Europe Twitter made half a billion um, dollars last year. Right, right, right. And talking about reputation that you you mentioned a little bit earlier, there's so much about social media. What's the role of social media? What's the role of social media in elections and referenda and all of these matters regarding the future well-being of our of our world? What do you make of that? A force for good, a force for good, but with some caveats. I mean, unequivocally, I think a force for good. You know, my f I, I remain an optimist in in terms of politics, but I think one thing that's been really clear over the last few years is that um, social media has given voice to the voiceless. And so, you know, as we're recording this, there was a wonderful story two days ago where a bookseller in Portsmouth, um, UK, tweeted out that <laughs> that he'd had he'd had his first ever zero. Uh, zero pounds sale. He'd, he'd made generated no revenue all day, and that tweet saw him getting uh, two thousand pounds worth of business um, that day. And he had th hundreds of customers coming to the store in person the next time. So, you know, just a, a good reminder that social media in all forms can be a force for good. It can, you know, give voice to the voiceless. Of course, is it more complicated than that? Absolutely, um, but the I think the themes and the issues that everyone deals with at Twitter they, they deal with with sort of the greatest integrity and a, and a sort of a, a, a commitment to making the right things happen. And tell me what's because I know you have the secret sauce, the secret recipe. So what is the secret sauce, the secret recipe to make something go viral? More than anything else, I would say that. The, the, the people who tend to perform best in all forms of social media are the ones who spend as much time listening as they do broadcasting. And so, you know, whether you want a TikTok to go viral, whether you want a single to be number one in the charts, whether you want um, wh whether you want a tweet to, to reach a big audience, you need to sort of get a sense of of what everyone's talking about and you, you'll just you'll pitch it right so broadly you know something that's not just about you things that go viral on twitter generally are f funny or clever observations of what's happening in the world they're very you know we, we often when i worked there that we often used to say that twitter was a look at look at this medium rather than a look at that medium it was You know, if if something went viral on Twitter, it was generally because someone was highlighting something that wasn't solipsistically about them, but was more um, was was more about the wider world. Yeah. Now here's a, here's another point. So it's Friday, end of the working week for most people. The joy of work. Tell me a little bit about the joy of work. You've written a little bit about the subject. I'd love to hear a little bit about it. I became I, I I've always been interested in the the strange mojo that seems to be that seems that some companies have and some companies lack. So um there's a strange thing I, I remember I used to work I started my my grown-up career working in radio and there used to be um, an adjacent company to us that was a competitor. And routinely, people from that company used to apply to the company I worked at because they said, you guys seem to be just m more committed, having more fun, seem to be to be happier than us. Um, and so I was really 
taken with that, okay, so what was it that we were doing right that that they were doing wrong? Anyway, fast forward a few years, and I found myself in a situation where I was uh, now I was running Twitter in the UK, and you know we we sort of. I was in the fortunate position that I could hire and I could build a team yeah. that would feel something closer to my experience. And, you know, there's, there's an old truism when it comes to management that, you know, manage people in the way that you wish to be managed. Uh, but the sad thing is a lot of people forget about that. Um, a lot of people forget how they want to be managed and, they they um and i think you know but it's a, it's an important reminder so the interesting thing for me was i spent firstly a long time running a podcast about making work better and mm-hmm. that's called eat sleep work repeat yeah and um because the podcast did so well it became number one business podcast it sort of garnered a a, a big audience i got approached and and i was asked would you like to turn this into a book and you know the the book's been the best-selling business book of the last year. It's um, congratulations. Thank you. It's it's done sort of incredibly well, and and I think it's largely because it tries to bring some of the research that exists that's out there. There's loads of research about work and making work better, but very little of it reaches people who've got jobs. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I've tried to make that research um, easy to understand. What I've tried to do is create something. My audience really was the audience that have you here, you've got here, people who want to make the world a better place. Um, maybe they're not always in charge. Maybe they're not always the boss, but they, they're optimistic that they can make the world better. Right, right, right. Here's the thing, though. Does um, email drive you crazy? Email is a, a fact of life. It's a frustration. You know, but I think it's not only email, it's email and meetings. It's um, if we if we deconstruct what the average working week looks like for um, for most people, it's they have uh, 16 hours of meetings a week. They have um, they they have 16 hours a week meetings a week. They have 200 emails. Um, they. 200 emails a day you know they're just in it they're sitting in an open plan office they're just overwhelmed mm-hmm. and and you know it's it's no doubt the case that a lot of people feel like there's just too too many demands upon them um and that's you know uh that's definitely the situation and so absolutely email drives us all crazy where do you see things going in terms of people working from home maybe not hopping on that airplane any longer and just doing a a video conference or what's the state of affairs do do we need to be in the office well here's the strange thing because a lot of the time if any of us find ourselves visualizing and imagining the future of work very easily we can imagine ourselves dialing into the some sort of remote call from maybe we're out on the this we're sitting on a lake or we're sitting on a beach somewhere and what often we discover is when people navigate to that form of working pretty quickly they remark to friends that um things just don't feel the same that they don't feel the same sense of cohesion that they had with their team before that they they feel like they're missing something and so i found i spent my time studying that trying to understand what is this thing that appears to be absent and sure enough there, there seems to be um something 
human synchronization sync i call it in the book that, that we appear to derive our energy even the introverts amongst us we appear to derive some of our energy from being around other people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and i think once you're aware of that um you can become far more intentional about how you can build work to, to adapt to it so for example you know you might be in a team that works completely remotely Okay, so if you know that a team that works completely remotely generally communicates about a fifth as much as a team that that is co-located. And if we work on the basis that each time we communicate, we make our work better, then you're presented with an interesting challenge. So how can I ensure that my team communicate well, even though they're not Mm co-located? And it seems that the evidence suggests to us that the, the more that we can um, ensure that anytime we are face to face, that we focus on deriving the energy and on, on, on extracting the energy from those encounters, then it really can help. So here's here's the scenario that you might have. Okay, I've got people working in locate thirty different locations across the world, but they get together once a year. So here's what I'm doing. I'm changing what that get together looks like. They're no longer going to spend so much time watching PowerPoint and sitting in meeting rooms. We're going to actually do some team building activities. Why? Because we derive a lot of our our energy from these human interactions. Might also say, okay, all the meetings in our calendar are going to kick off on the hour, but actually the content only starts at five past the hour. Why? Because it appears that that's one of the things that we lose. If you're co-located with someone very regularly, you'll say to them, how's your, how's your dancing going? How's your soccer going? How, How are these social pastimes going? And these little comments form a a way of us forging connections with each other. And they're lost when we work remotely. We often don't, expend the energy to ask how someone's cat is doing or the the personal elements of their life Mm. and there seems to be really good evidence that these tiny little connections produce far more good than we realize i was really taken with a study of unmarried couples who were who were living they were living the distance relationship thing so so they were living in different cities forty thousand couples and the researcher who did this wanted to understand at the end of 12 months, some of these couples will have made the dis- distance and some of them won't have made the distance. What are the things that will determine why one couple can can live this long, this long distant relationship and others can't? Here's what they found. They found that the couples who phoned each other every day to talk about trivial things stayed together. Mm-hmm. Right. What does that sh- say to us? Number one is that... The, these um, these old-fashioned, these almost analog connections produce more than we sometimes might imagine. So, you know, we could very easily imagine that we sent an iMessage or a WhatsApp to someone and that that, that formed pretty much the same content as this call but it's it's someone phoning and saying, oh, I've just put the recycling out and it was raining. Those almost ridiculously mundane connections seem to be what form the jump off point to us building relationships. So how do we connect people a little bit? Because everybody, everybody's on the phone nobody uh, ever engages with each other. Even the people who know each other, uh, you see it over the dinner tables, you see it pretty much everywhere. Sort of like you're in your existence by yourself somehow and your phone right gripped tightly by your hand. 
I, I, I'm really fascinated. I met a really inspiring woman who's a doctor in a, uh, in a London hospital uh-huh. and she runs the emergency room. She runs the, what we would call the A&E department. And, um, and she was noticing exactly this, but here's, here's the constraint that she had. She had zero budget. She had zero time, but she wanted to make her team feel more connected. Now, her solution was she introduced some theatre games. So these are sort of the games that artists, actors, improvisers might do at the start of a day to um, to build uh, to, to build their improvisation skills. They've got like a series of games that have been evolved over time. So she introduced these games. And the way she described it to me, she said, we did one. Anyone could do it, actually. Any of your listeners could do this as an exercise with their, their team, which is a, a tournament-level game of rock, paper, scissors. So, you know, like I said, the way it works is that you and the person next to you would play rock, paper, scissors, best out of three. Yeah. But the, if you win, the person who was playing you becomes your principal cheerleader. And if you if you lose, you become the cheerleader, and the winner goes on and plays someone else. So here's how you do it very quickly. The, you know, the, the, it, it goes from 30, comp, uh, 30 people playing 15 round, uh, 15 games to then, you know, seven, then six. Then, and, and effectively the game's over very quickly. She, she described a scene for me where the winner, I think was Colombian or Ecuadorian. And the winner um, jumped onto the table and sang the Colombian national anthem. And everyone immediately paused and said like what is this what is this that you're singing is the extraordinary <laughs> lang- uh, uh, anthem and they Im- immediately turned this nurse from being oh that's claudia i don't know where she's from to being this is claudia from colombia and we've got a connection and they they immediately resolved at the next meeting they were going to play or sing their national anthems and what's happened so this this game they've played has been a catalyst that we all walk into a room and we all want to, you must, you must recognize this. You go to dinner with people, you're sitting around the table and you know, there will be something that catalyzes a good dialogue between you and the person, next to you. but it's a guessing game. And sometimes these artificial constructions, and it might be a, a improvisation game like this one, or it might be a board game. Sometimes these little constructions can actually catalyze us into a better version of ourselves. So I think that was it. My uh, my conclusion was teams that demonstrate that forging social sync between each other is valuable are the ones that generate better social sync with each other. Mm. It's almost self-evident. I met a guy who uh, was the world's leading expert on laughter. A guy called Robert Provine. He's done some wonderful work. You know, he, he's uh, he's really just gone out of his way to study why we laugh and what laughter signals. And and as human beings, you know, laughter is not quite unique to human beings. Apes laugh, and and in fact, there's some evidence that animals like rats laugh as well. So we're we're not alone in laughing. But he wanted to know what it signals, and what he discovered was laughter is um, laughter is about human connection we laugh you'll you'll recognize this we we laugh far more when we're watching comedy with other people than when we're laughing than we're when we're watching it alone laughter is about connection <laughs> and as soon as you recognize laughter is about connection he said so the next thing is you you have to ask yourself so if laughter is about connection 
what um you know are you setting time aside to laugh um and so you know it's just fascinating it's uh just so he's like okay so do you have a weekly meeting where the sort of part of it is is about laughing okay but that's a really interesting provocation um that is excellent i'll tell you something though which is i i think i'm i'm unique but i'd be keen to hear from any listeners who who share this uh this predicament, uh, usually you hear somebody waking up in the middle of the night because of a nightmare. And in my case, that does happen every once in a while, but actually it's more likely that I'll wake up in the middle of the night uh, laughing out loud because I'm cracking yeah. up at whatever my dream is giving me. <laughs> and that happens quite often. That'll happen yeah, maybe I mean, once a month or once every two months. Uh, whereas waking up from a nightmare happens maybe once a year, if, if that. Yeah. Um, no, I love to laugh, and I laugh at my own jokes and so forth, which can annoy my wife. But uh, <laughs> but that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, I look for me. This sounds like a sign of deep, <laughs> deeply indelible happiness. If you're laughing at you, waking up laughing, I think that's uh, that's what we would all aspire to do. It happens a lot. So tell me, I know we're um, we covered so much ground in this very structured podcast. Um, now, as you know, the podcast is about encouraging people to be more philanthropic, sustainable, and embrace social entrepreneurship. What is it that you would like to leave our audience with as a key takeaway, a key parting thought before we wrap things up? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, for me, um, I it I was very much about um, small acts of kindness and and you know thinking about. I very much strongly believe that if you can make someone's life happier and better at school uh, at work or wherever you are then you know that actually transforms one person's life and it can be incredibly powerful so you know small acts of kindness um you know one of the best things i've done is i uh, a volunteer somewhere and um and actually for me the very act of doing that feels it feels immensely powerful um, as it's just a way to, to feel more connected to others. So um, those things I think can be self-sustaining as much as anything. How can somebody get hold of you if they want? All to? of my stuff is at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Uh, that's the name of my podcast. That's, that's the name of my book in the U S in the UK. The book's called the joy of work. Same book. Well, slightly different. I've adapted all, all the spellings of, different. All the spellings are different. There's a lot more use in the English one. Uh, but the um, but I've also I've also updated all of the anecdotes. So you'll be spared some of the nuances of British life. Um, but yes, so they're the things. And I replied to every tweet I get. I replied to every LinkedIn I get. So I'm pretty contactable. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Bruce, really delightful speaking with you. And, uh, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, Do One Better podcast today. I've loved it. Thank Great. you so much. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.